did I get the job? Absolutely not. Why not? Because you're a baby boomer and I'm a millennial. Most Gen Xers are in school during the crash. So at first they think like, so what? I am a Gen Xer. But I came to find out that actually the term Generation X, it has no meaning. How is eating meat racist? I'll gladly tell you. Looks like we've got an oppressor on our hands. Millennials and Generation Z have the Peter Pan syndrome. They don't ever want to grow up. Maybe they lost why you didn't do anything while there still was time to act. You say you love your children above all else, and yet you're stealing their future in front of their very eyes. You're going to mature and you're going to realize nothing's free, that things aren't equal, and that your utopian society you created in your mind in your youth simply is not sustainable. Okay, Boomer, listen up. Generational conflict is back. Boomers have stolen millennials' future. They've used up scarce resources while voting for austerity. For their part, millennials are self-absorbed avocado scoffers who rather complain than work and save. Where once the young rebels of the 1960s stuck it to the man, and by extension their parents' generation, today it's the turn of the young to challenge that very same 60s generation, now grown old, retired, and complacent. It's they who mortgaged our future, didn't they? This is the growing narrative of generationalism, the belief that all members of a given generation possess characteristics specific to that generation, which make it inferior or superior to another. Our turbulent times at the end of the end of history are generating new cleavages and conflicts, and the Generation War is one of the most prominent across the West. Welcome to OK Boonger, The Problem of Generations, a special five-part series by Alfe Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. In this third episode of the series, we look at the baby boomers, those born 1945 to 1964, what they did when they were young and what they did as they aged, who they really are and were, and the myths they weaved about themselves. In the last episode, we learned how generational consciousness grew across the 19th century, reaching a crescendo after the First World War with the so-called lost generation. But not all generations are made the same. Some are more prominent or self-aware than others. Prominent and self-aware are terms that definitely apply to the baby boomers. The boomers have typified the cultural script in the West, as told through the sequence of decades. If you hear 1960s or 1980s, you'll have a clear idea in your head of fashion, of music, of cultural affect and political inclinations. You'll have the cliches of peace, acoustic guitar and bell-bottoms, or of synthesizers, suits, and stock markets. But this story is not so much a story of generational sequence, as much as what the boomers themselves did as they passed from one phase of life to another. This is partly because it's the boomers themselves who wrote that cultural script, that succession of decades each laden with a certain idea. Moreover, the period from the 1960s onwards is precisely the era when the notion of a cultural script itself becomes important and self-reflexive that is, conscious of itself. Television, the mass medium of the age, no doubt helped. And because of an acceleration of historical change, the world did seem to change quite a bit every 10 years. 
But before we go any further, we need to ask some basic questions. What exactly was the baby boom? And what was this new cohort that entered the world after the Second World War? So the baby boomers are a really fascinating generation, I think. Jenny Bristow again, a sociologist at Canterbury Christ Church University and the author of a number of books on generations, including Baby Boomers and Generational Conflict, and most recently, The Corona Generation, co-written with her teenage daughter. They are called the baby boomers for two reasons. Uh, One, that they were a demographic baby boom that came just after the end of the Second World War. And I'll say a bit more about how they were defined that way in a minute. But they also were born into uh, the economic boom, the the, the post-war economic boom. Now, when you think about how that kind of idea, that that term came about, the, the baby boomer, Uh, It strikes you that it's very American. okay? so there was a baby boom after the Second World War in, you know, most parts of the Western world. But it took very different forms Um, in America. You had um, a big kind of increase in the number of children born, um, which was partly because obviously the the war had ended and soldiers were coming home and uh, partly because of the experience of uh, immigration from the Second World War and more people kind of coming to America. And that was like a sort of sustained bump that went on roughly for 20 years. In Britain, where arguably we have much less of an economic boom compared to America, the baby boom looked very different. So what you see is a real kind of spike in the births um, from, say, 1946 to about 1949, and then a dip. And then a bit later, you get a kind of a, a, a sort of more sustained bulge. But there were not that many more kids born in that period than would have normally been the case. It wasn't so kind of massive. And so the answer to the question of did the baby boom happen everywhere? Well, it sort of did. But I think it also took a very different demographic pattern. So it's fine to say it was a kind of, you know, international Western phenomenon. But we have to be careful because when claims are made about the size of the baby boom, for example, or the disproportionate size of the baby boomers to previous and subsequent generations, um, often what's what's happening there is the application of an American model onto other countries where the character of that demographic change is quite different. So if the demographic boom is clearly expressed in the US, does that also make the cultural narrative particularly American? was different i think in america the story of the baby boomers is is a bit more kind of rounded in the sense that on the one hand you have the the story of the you know the the kids who grew up in the 50s right and and having that sort of you know, greater affluence and 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 so on um and you also have the story of the counterculture and everything that kicked off around student campuses in the the late 60s i think in continental europe you have a slightly different story because there wasn't that much affluence when the baby boomers were were young, but you have a powerful kind of narrative of the development of the welfare state. So these are the kids who kind of grew up with uh, the welfare state being developed to sustain their future, if you like. That, that, that That's the sort of the narrative there. So you have the welfare state as opposed to massive affluence. And of course, you had the cultural component as well, the high 60s. And you do see that in, you know, in France, Italy, Britain. But of course, just as in America, you know, university campuses aren't the whole world. 
you know, the, 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 where these where the counterculture happened was in quite selected places. You have that in Britain as well. I mean, I, I mean, you could even argue that the 60s in Britain, the, the idea of it is really based on a part of London in the late 60s. You know, it wasn't generalizable to the whole country, let alone the whole of university campuses. The most salient fact about the boomers is that there are a lot of them. Helen Andrews, senior editor at the American Conservative and author of Boomers, The Men and Women Who Promised Freedom and Delivered Disaster. Which means that as they have passed through each phase of their life, they have defined America's sense of itself as they move through the life cycle. So when they were young and in their 20s, in the 1960s, America thought of itself in terms of youth. Uh, That's how we remember the 60s as a time when young people were doing young people things. And as the boomers got older, they continued to define America's sense of itself. So they were going a little bit more crazy in the 1970s. And by the 1980s, they had grown up a little, moved to the suburbs, become middle-aged. And so we think of the 80s in terms of capitalism and focusing on your careers. Uh, By the 90s, they were parents and so on and so on. You can see it actually in our sense of the drugs that define each decade. (laughs) The 1960s were the age of marijuana because they were young and didn't have a lot of money. When they had a little bit more money in the 70s to throw around, they were buying cocaine. And in the 1980s, focusing on their careers, they were taking Valium to cope with the stress. Mm -hmm. So however old the boomers have been, they have made America revolve around them. The boomers have been characterized as the me generation, suggesting narcissism. Josh Glenn, a semiotician and author, and the publisher of the site High Lowbrow, which provides a novel periodization of generations, suggests an alternative view. When I, you know, when I was reading about narcissism and then other kinds of psychological syndromes, I came across this idea of imaginative suggestibility, which is this idea of being responsive to suggestion without hypnosis. So, in other words, being able to self-hypnotize yourself. And that struck me as exactly what boomers are all about. They just completely are... Um, absorbed absolutely wholeheartedly, uh, 100% into whatever it is that they're into, and then also able to completely drop that, you know, move away from it again. So you get like the yippies turning into the yuppies or whatever, right? They can be 100% about this thing, and then the next day be 100% about another thing. There's also kind of a fantasy proneness around imaginative suggestibility, where you kind of want to frame your life in a mythical register, which I think they've done on a generational scale. They're a mythical generation, but also, you know, Characters from within the boomer generation are also tend to sort of self-mythologize. And there's kind of a hysteria proneness as well with imaginative suggestibility where a kind of tendency to emotional excess. I mean, all these things that I'm talking about make, make you think of the anti-war movement, the environmental movement, women's movement, anti-nukes, all the stuff around, um, you know, Jaws and E.T. and all these big blockbuster movies, um, movies about coming of age in that era, like Greece and American Graffiti and, Animal House, and of course, all these movies about coming of age in the 60s, like, you know, Good Morning Vietnam and Hairspray and Platoon and Born on the Fourth of July. And then kind of being prone to hysteria around whether it's Beatlemania or Woodstock or Altamont. (laughs) 
What then were the formative events that could lead to this construction of character, at least among a certain generation unit, that is, a section of a cohort that comes to represent the generation as a whole? Jeffrey Alexander, professor of sociology at Yale University, and one of those student rebels back in the 1960s. I wanted to become a lawyer and, uh, and then a politician in Los Angeles to help restructure the United States. So it was a pretty traditional you know, arc of what I was going to do. And then when I went to Harvard, I went, when I was 18, I was going to um, realize that idea. But then, and the first year of Harvard was more or less without generational disruption. Around the, the middle of 1966, everything seemed to explode. Uh, it was just like um, a break in time almost. And for the next four or five years, there was this kind of opening in history that seemed to be create a liminal experience of intense. I was intensely aware of a break with everything that the society represented with my parents, um, who I had always had a lot of affection and respect for. And the first experience of that was in terms of, you could say, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It wasn't very political, except in an indirect sense. It was, it was about trying to experience a different life that was, you know, a kind of fused romantic experience. But a company that is alienation from the institutions like Harvard, which I had an intense reaction against at that time. And this division of the world between straight, what was called the straight world, the establishment and the world that we felt we were part of. And there was this feeling of great solidarity, different way of dressing, a different way of looking, different way of acting, different ways of greeting people. In the midst of this, I became hyper aware of I mean, my big issue, I think, was the Vietnam War. And as I became radicalized, I became politicized by virtue of the war, not really by virtue of race. That wasn't my personal experience. But then I decided, which was true, that the United States was just completely criminal in its behavior in Vietnam and that the leadership of the United States were very deceptive and misleading, and I joined demonstrations. We thought that they had led completely corrupt lives. That notion of don't trust anybody over 30, it seemed, it's laughable now, but then it seemed palpable and completely real. So my father was in advertising, and I thought, even though I still had personal affection for my father. I thought he had corrupted, sold out, that he was doing the worst, worst, worst possible thing with his life. I hated capitalism. And I also thought that the social work, and I gradually came to feel that my mother's life of amelioration and helping oppressed people was only a revolution, that she was misled. Well, what happened at the end of college is I really focused a lot on the war. I felt the United States was imperialistic. And I joined SDS, became very involved politically in the campus struggles. 
I was uh, suspended for a sit-in that disrupted a faculty meeting that was considering this thing called ROTC, which was the military training program of Harvard students in return for having them get a scholarship through the whole time, and then they'd become officers. So, I mean, these were very, in a way, terrifying experiences, uh, at least for me, because you were confronting authority very harshly. And then SDS was organized into two factions and the factions fought each other. And eventually there was a takeover of the administration building at Harvard. And then there was a giant explosion and I was elected to the steering committee of the Harvard student strike at a meeting. There were about 1,200 or 2,000 people. And that was really the peak experience. It seemed like the world had opened up. It was like a Wordsworthian or Blake. It was this apparent inversion of the rationalism and the what I felt at the time, the deep, the impersonalism, uh, the alienation. So the entire spring semester of Harvard was stopped. People were, were tie-dyeing and selling crafts in the center of the Harvard yard. And we were going to meetings every day to try to theorize the overthrow of capitalism. So it was kind of like the French commune experience. I mean, it was, it was really, um, it was beautiful. I mean, we were beside ourselves as were thousands of other young men and women at the time. In Germany, naturally, the social landscape after the war was different. Holger Nering, historian of Europe at the University of Stirling in Scotland, and an expert in the transnational history of social movements. To start with, it was first of all a world of complete distraction. So, so the German cityscape, especially if you grew up in a city, would have still shown the scars of the destruction of the uh, Second World War well into the late 1950s, if not even uh, longer than that. So this really framed some of the, of the background to that. And in connection with that, especially for those who then got involved in social movements, there was also a feeling of moral destruction and also uh, guilt, or at least vicarious guilt. So these two experiences, quite interesting how they interacted in different groups of the population, because you then have on, on one level, you have a sort of emerging hedonistic subculture that are then classified as the so-called Halbstarke or, or the sort of hooligans who basically got into with growing affluence into consumer culture. So they bought themselves uh, motorbikes or mopeds and uh, they consumed um, mostly American, but then also increasingly uh, British pop music or, or rock music, which if you listen to this today, uh, sounds very tame, but really caused huge, huge scandals. You know, why are they doing this? Why are they wasting their times like this? They're not good citizens. So you have kind of that strand. You then have another strand of a group of people, usually probably uh, slightly older, mostly actually the parents who would um, engage in uh, consumption, 
um, and essentially lead private lives. So a huge emphasis on the family uh, and privacy uh, within affluence. And this was probably the largest chunk of the population. And then you have, this is usually on the political left, but not only, and that's quite interesting, um, a group of people who actually say, neither of those approaches actually works. Um, we need to get actively uh, politically involved and actually overcome this kind of sense of both physical and moral destruction somehow. And we shouldn't be lured into um, the, uh, the kind of consumer uh, culture and we shouldn't be lulled by it. So uh, consumption perhaps, yes, but not in the sense of um, getting uh, dominated by it. Did this mean a direct generational confrontation, even within the family unit? On one level, yes, especially if you look at uh, the kind of uh, student movements of the 1960s. This is very strongly there in the rhetoric, this kind of accusation of uh, parents of having been complicit precisely because of this kind of inward-looking, consumer-oriented, private, bourgeois, sometimes educated bourgeois, so what was called a spießig. Uh, lifestyle at the time, so sort of philistine, if one were to translate basic mindset. Um, but the interesting thing is, so Dittler Siegfried, for example, has shown this in, in his great work, that within families, actually, this didn't matter that much. So, so there weren't sort of constant discussions at the dinner table. So, so the students, some of the students who still lived with their parents or would come home uh, to their parents over weekends or, or over, over the holidays, they would not necessarily seek confrontation with their parents at home. Uh, they would do this in, in public. So there was a kind of interesting disjuncture from that perspective as well. You want to protest the war? Protest it right here in Old Room Rock. What am I going to do, march around the post office? Bring the war home, isn't that the slogan? Look, they gave me this award. It's just a stupid plaque, but it means one thing. If you take a stand, people notice. If you oppose the war, right here, with all your strength, this is part of America too, you know. Read Marx. Revolutions don't begin in the countryside. We're not talking about revolution. You're not talking about revolution. Police have widened their search for the missing teenager, Meredith Laval, for her involvement in the bombing of a post office. Philip Roth certainly captured something in his depiction of the 1960s and the collapse of old authority in American Pastoral, the film adaptation from which the preceding clip was taken. However, Jenny Bristow agrees with Holger Nehring's findings that revolt did not so much happen in the home against one's parents. So what were the boomers reacting against? You've reached the end of this free sample of part three of OK Boonger, The Problem of Generations. For access to the full one hour, 40 minute long episode, you'll have to subscribe at patreon.com slash We'd love to see you there. 